Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and I just got done laughing extraordinarily hard. My new best friend, Beck G. Cohen, we had quite a time talking about things like recovery and addiction and LGBT stuff and advocacy and doing your work and all kinds of things. And I just am so grateful for this podcast, you guys. I don't know if you understand how cool this is. Like I get to talk to the coolest people in the world. And I'm just so excited to share this interview with Beck G. Cohen. Please enjoy. Hey, Beck. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hey, how's it going? Nice to be here. Yeah, it's going. I was just thinking, so I don't know when we're going to air this, but we're recording in January and I just took my dog outside and I was like, if Beck brings up the fucking weather in California, I'm going to punch him in the face because I don't want to hear that shit right now. <laughs> All right. Well, so, welcome. It's really cold here in California. The weather is horrible. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like one degrees. Where are you even? I don't even know where you are. Chicago. Oh, ugh. I, mean, I love Chicago. I love Chicago. Don't get me wrong. We're best friends already. Oh, good. It's like one of my favorite cities in like the summer. Right. Yeah. It is a great city. But yes, right now, it's a lot. Yeah. I lived in Minneapolis for five years. So I'm like right there. So you did it. You've done your time. And I'm done with it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, good for you. Great. Weather's out of the way. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, just so the listeners know, I stalked you. Because you kept coming up on Facebook as people I should know. And I was like, okay, fine, Facebook. What do you want me to know? And then I looked and we have all of these mutual addiction friends. And then I looked at your website and I was like, wait a minute, trans stuff and addiction stuff. I'm in. I need to talk to this person. Yeah. And then I reached out and you were kind enough to reply. So I'm so excited you're here. Awesome. Yeah. I'm super stoked to be here. Anytime I can get some kind of airtime to talk about what I'm passionate about, I'll take it. Yes. I was just talking to a friend and he was saying, well, you know, you're like a token, right? So that's why. (laughs) (laughs) You You are the second trans person I've had on here, though. So sorry, you're not the token. Well, that's really good to know. I mean, you know, there's only two of us. Yes. Only two. So you are no pressure, but you are speaking for all trans people. Right. right Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Listeners were kidding. We're totally kidding. (laughs) Anyway, well, let's get into it. So do you want to tell people who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Beck G. Cohen and I am a consultant. I work in the world of treatment, behavioral health, mental health, doing a couple of different things. Actually, my wife asks me what I'm doing for a job all the time. And I usually say, whatever's in front of me, whatever's in front of me. Mm -hmm. So first off, I do a lot of training, facilitating workshops around, I can say around the world on LGBTQ best practices, working Mm -hmm. with trans people, really helping clinicians to do better with their clients. So it is basically, I really believe like it's really what I've been born to do. Mm. And I know this because I've tried to not do it and uh, just keeps falling back into my space and into my universe. And so it was time for me to just embrace that. I was working as a clinician and I've worked in different capacities around treatment. And in the last 
four or five years, I've been really honing in on training and facilitating, like I said, workshops and things like that and CEU events, speaking at conferences. And then I also work with families, adolescents and young adults, helping them to find treatment, seek those who are needing help. So it's like an education consultant, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's called. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I come from more of a therapeutic lens and Mm -hmm. work with a team that we really are able to help young people. And my specialty, of course, is LGBTQ, adolescents, young adults, and working with those who have substance use issues. So it's been a real gift. And like Mm -hmm. I said, it's whatever's in front of me. I get clinicians calling me, facilities calling me, families calling me. And You know, it's good for someone like me who likes to just do a lot of different stuff and hopefully help where I can. So it's been a little bit, I mean, just like, to be honest, it's just been some days are harder than others, you know, like doing this work can be hard. And some days you think, am I ever going to be able to help anyone? And uh, yeah, (laughs) in other days you're like, you take the wins and I totally get that. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. I had a win day yesterday and was like feeling so good. And then I saw my consultant supervisor today and then talked about all the icky stuff. And I was like, fuck, I'm back down again. God (laughs) damn it. Because like clinical stuff is way easier for me than the business stuff. I don't know about you. Yeah. I mean, when I'm sitting in a room with a kid, like it's easy. Mm -hmm. The logistical stuff is the nightmare part, you know, (laughs) and sometimes it's the parents too. That's the hard part. The kids, Mm -hmm. you know, the young people are just trying to get through life in this world and in this craziness that's happening in the world around them. They're just trying to find their way. And I was working with a group of young people yesterday who I was sitting there thinking at 13 or 14 years old, I never had to think about the political climate. Right. That was like not on my radar. My radar was making out with people, Uh getting drugs, you know, doing those kinds of things, but without any kind of political (laughs) air to the world. So it's just it's so different. I know. And we didn't have anybody like with phones on their cameras recording our every move. Right. Well, actually, I don't know how old you are, but I didn't have that. Yeah. Or cameras on their phones. Phones on their cameras is good, too. But yes. (laughs) Who needs to say words in the right order, Beck? Whatever. Words. (laughs) Words. (laughs) Late. I had a feeling we were going to be able to give each other shit right off the bat. So I'm really excited I was correct. Listen, I will probably screw up multiple times in this hour. (laughs) But yeah, when I was getting bullied in school, I got to go home. And have some downtime. These Mm -hmm. kids don't have that at all. There's no downtime from the bullying and the mass media and the body image stuff and all the crap that's out there. Mm -hmm. So it's a different world. And I'm just trying to do the best I can and make connections where I can. A big part of the work that I do also is mentoring with young people. And so a lot of them have never even had a conversation or in person with another trans person or especially mm-hmm. a trans adult. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really, I mean, I guess age wise, I'm an adult, but you know, that's <laughs> emotionally De- probably debatable not. for all of us. Debatable, definitely yeah. debatable. But I think that it's been many, many times where I sit across, you know, the table or the room from someone and we're just having conversation back and forth because they find out all their information on YouTube right. and they have conversations with their friends, but they don't see the future, the possibilities that could happen. And for parents, too, and uh, mm-hmm. who, who are just thinking that their kids are in a phase and they don't see any out or they don't see that their kids can be something. So I'm very aware and very grateful. And I hold that gift like very close to my heart. 
every yeah. single day that I get to at least help in that way. So let me ask you maybe what might be a controversial question, because I've talked to other therapists who work with teens. I don't anymore. And truthfully, part of it is because of the parents. <laughs> but a lot of it is just my work has shifted. But I have worked with teens and I feel like gender is so fluid and it's very, very different for kids growing up today than when we were growing up. And sometimes I have found in front of me a person who is saying that they might want to go by a different pronoun where this is the shitty part because some kids are not really in touch with their true selves and who they are. And some of it does become this kind of attention seeking. And my fear is that that takes away from the kids where this is an issue. And mm -hmm. I realize that a that's part of people's journey, right? To figure all of that out, I guess. Because part of it is like, I want to protect this space, kind of like I do for people with addiction issues, too. Like, I would never say I know exactly what an addict's gone through because I don't. But I know what the feelings are like. And I want to have reverence for the word recovery for that reason. So I feel like they're kind of like a similar thing. So I just said a lot. But does any of that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think there's pieces to that, right? So if I have a kid who is questioning their gender identity and they want to shift their pronouns... I would rather a kid shift their pronouns 200 times in their lifetime or in the time that I have them than not explore that and go yeah. off and kill themselves. Yeah. Right? God. Like, yeah. Like, when you I'm say it that way, fuck. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, I would rather have a kid explore that and go back and forth and all of these things and try to understand themselves than mm -hmm. to just hide it and not mm -hmm. say anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's necessarily taking away from other kids' experience of gender identity. Right. I get what you're saying, though, like, you know, kind of attention-seeking. Mm -hmm. And when you're working with vulnerable kids who may have some mental health issues, attachment mm -hmm. disorders, all of that, we're all mm -hmm. trying to find our way. And yeah. maybe that's, like, the way that they're trying to get in. Yeah. And it is just being very honest and very blunt and allowing kids to just be and I think the attention seeking comes from when people say, no, that's not it. You can't yeah. be that. You can't do that. And then it exacerbates their yes, need. Yes. And if we just kind of go, okay, cool, <laughs> you yeah. know, and we just go, okay, great. That's what you want to do. Awesome. Let's explore it. Let's use those pronouns that you want to use right now. Great. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of, it's almost like the pass the butter kind of reaction or response. Right. And that I want to pull the parents in at this point, because that's the piece as a clinician to be able to try to help the parents create that space, because we mm -hmm. could do that in our office. And it only is so effective when kids go home and then their parents are like, cut that shit out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a painful experience. And what I've experienced with parents, too, is really getting down to what it means for them yeah. to have a kid who yeah. is exploring their gender and it plays on their own thoughts. And I'm a big believer in doing grief work with parents. Mm -hmm. And what I will tell them is what I first ask parents when they're going through this process with a kiddo is what were your expectations mm -hmm. when you were pregnant with this kid or when before mm -hmm. you had this kid or got this kid, you know, if you adopted, like what were your expectations? And all of it boils down to, I will say like 99.9% .9 of the time, I want a happy and healthy kid. Right. It's not about like, I want mm -hmm. my kid to be a boy or a girl or have a penis or a vagina. You know, it's like mm -hmm. not about that. It's about happy and healthy. And so I say, okay, great. You have a kiddo who's like happy and healthy in front of you. And I get that maybe there's some loss of like the expectations that you mm -hmm. had, 
And we can do that work because if we don't do that work, it's going to come out sideways. Exactly. So let's do that work over here. And so that you can spend your time being present and getting to know who your kid actually is. Yeah. And I've been reading a lot about attachment lately and just if the parents don't get in touch with their own feelings about everything, you're going to pass it down to your kid. And then kids got their own shit and your shit. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we all have our shit, right? Like we we all do and we all pass it, but it's the awareness. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times when you're not in this sphere of mental health or Mm -hmm. trauma work, attachment work, that you don't have an awareness. Now I can walk through life and realize my attachment stuff going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, Oh fuck. You know, like (laughs) there it is again (laughs) all the time. That's that's Mm -hmm. like, that's probably why I'm not leaving my house today. You know, right. Right. (laughs) Tuesday. I don't (laughs) want attachment Tuesday. My dogs now I'm like, you're not paying attention to me. But you know, I think that once you have an awareness, then you're forced to look at it. Mm-hmm. And so when you get parents in the room and they're thinking, oh, you're going to fix my kid. Yep, and yep. you're like, actually, we're going to try to fix this whole family system because it's all messed mm-hmm. up. That's where parents are like turning off and being like pulling their kids from treatment and pulling their kids from your mm-hmm. care. So that's hard. Mm-hmm. That's probably why you don't work with adolescents anymore. <laughs> yeah. And just families, too, because with yeah. addiction, you know, when I was working in treatment centers, it's so hard to get the family to come in. It's so much more difficult for me to get somebody to go to an Al-Anon meeting than it is for me to get somebody to go to AA. Oh, absolutely. Trillion yeah, times Forget harder. it. Right, right. <laughs> Just fix them. Once they get sober, mm-hmm. they'll be fine. And you're like, mm, <laughs> no, right, that's right. not how this works. Yeah, that's kind of just one tiny little piece of the puzzle. And I think also, too, I've been having this conversation with some people that when we're talking about addiction and we're talking about enabling, we -hmm. talk about it a lot with addiction, right? We talk about the enabler, but we don't necessarily talk about it when it comes to strictly mental health. Yes, yes. And so like a lot of therapists that I work with who are dealing with individuals who have mental health issues strictly, not addiction issues, Mm -hmm. the parents aren't seeing and the therapists aren't seeing like this is enabling behavior and we need to start Mm -hmm. talking about this because if we don't, it's just going to keep going because Mm -hmm. I think when you have like a suicidal person Mm -hmm. or a depressed Mm -hmm. person, it's a lot easier or not easier, but the enabling is looks differently. Yes. And it looks like I'm saving my person's life. Exactly. When you're doing enabling work with an addict, it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to stand for you drinking in the house. I'm not going to stand for you taking money. It's so much more cut and dry than on the mental health side. Totally. And I feel like as therapists who work with addiction, I think we're so sensitive to that. And it's probably so much easier for us to see it than it is for a general practitioner. I find that those of us who work in addiction, we're so much more directive sometimes because we know some of that behavior like has to go away because it's not just the one person. It is the system. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to hear if you're comfortable sharing a little bit about your own recovery journey. Sure. I love sober stories. <laughs> I've been sober about 13 and a half years. July 11th, 2005 is my sobriety date. Mm. And when I got sober, I actually got sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm breaking my anonymity, but no one else is. Right. Which we can talk about that, too. I have feelings and thoughts about that. Go on. (laughs) You have feelers about it. I do. Yeah. I mean, because I work in treatment, right? And people are like, oh, you must have went to treatment. And I was like, "Uh, actually not. 
Mm-hmm. But where I got sober, I was living up in Santa Cruz and met this woman who I was bartending and DJing at a gay bar. And, you know, like we do, because mm-hmm. the drinks are free flowing at yep. that point. I met a woman who would come into the bar and come dancing and she ordered the classic recovery cocktail of soda water, cranberry Mm -hmm. and lime. And it was just fascinating to me. There's something about her, right? Mm. That I was just connected with. And we ended up becoming friends. And I guess I was her token drunk friend. Yes, uh, yes. (laughs) She was my token sober friend because I would tell her about all the drama that was happening. And Mm. we connected and I reached out. Well, I didn't know because I was a drunk texter, but she called me one day (laughs) and was like, yeah, let's go to lunch and talk about this. And I was like, oh, what did I say? (laughs) So I had to like go through some text messages and at like four in the morning, I texted her, I think I need help. So we went to lunch and she's like, I'll take you to a meeting or whatever. I was like, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. If all this drama wasn't happening around me, I wouldn't have an issue. Right, right. Exactly. Yes. It's just the drama. Right. So then my token sober friend decided to move to Montana and open up a restaurant. And she mm. was joking around, was like, you should come out and help me open a restaurant. You know about this kind of business. And I was like, mm, absolutely not. Someone like me in Montana, like this queer person tattooed, mm-hmm. like that is like the only thing I know about Montana is like, that's where Matthew right. Shepard killed, right? right? Like that's like, they string you up and kill you there. But then I was like, well, it could be like summer camp. I could just go and help her open. Then I can mm. move from the drama. And I left the day on January 10th and I had my last drink. And for some weird reason, I knew I couldn't drink in her house Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to tempt her, even though she had like 11 years of sobriety at this point, which I realized Mm -hmm. like I wouldn't be tempting her. But that's my own selfishness. But it got you to stop. So, hey. Yeah, got me to stop. (laughs) So I went and I was about three weeks in. I was like literally living in her house with like Mm -hmm. just in my pajamas eating, you know. (laughs) pizza and probably horrible, just like a horrible feeling. And they would go to meetings and they'd come back and they'd be all happy. And I'd be like, fuck you. Like, what yep. is this stuff? And, and I was on a hike and I was smoking a pack of cigarettes <laughs> it's like way up in the mountains, smoking cigarettes. And I broke down and I said, I think I need to go to one of those meetings or mm. I, something is going on here because Really what I believe is like if you stop drinking or using mm-hmm. and you don't have something involved in your life, then yes. your life gets worse. Yes. If you're like a normal drinker and you stop drinking, your life gets better. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like, oh, yeah, look it. I'm not drinking anymore. I feel better. Life is good. Whatever. I'm back on track. But for someone who has like a really significant addiction issue, my life was getting worse and my mental health mm-hmm. was getting worse. I don't know how fast they got the car to me at that point in time, but like <laughs> it literally like took me to a meeting that, at that moment. They were probably like, thank God. You yeah, know? it's about time. <laughs> and for me, like I haven't had to take a drink since and I haven't mm-hmm. take, had to take a drug since. That doesn't mean that my recovery journey has been easy at all. I was suicidal at five years sober Mm, as I wasn't out about being trans. Oh, wow. I did the recovery thing where I went to the dentist and I went back to Mm -hmm. school because that's what you do when you get sober. Yes, literally. (laughs) I I, I always tell my students the dentist is the first thing to go. So they got to put it back. Yep. Always. That's so funny. Yeah. Went to the dentist and went back to school. (laughs) And then I... I, no, I, just lo- I love you already. <laughs> so I started, yeah, I started working in treatment and I started doing admissions and then I was like, maybe I'd be a good counselor. And then I went to graduate school and well, I was supposed to be in Montana for three months and I ended up staying there for five years mm. in Bozeman and I love it. I love it there so much. But I went to grad school 
And, you know, I was still hiding the secret. And I had met someone who was trans when I was like 21 years old. I met a couple guys and I didn't even know it was a possibility. Right. Mm. But I hid that. And I would think about it late at night and drunk and high. And when I got sober, six months sober, I wrote these guys and they said, you know, I said, can you just tell me your story about like mm. being trans? <laughs> yeah. And they told my story. And, yes. But I still closed the door on it because I was like, there's no way. There's no way I can do this. Mm. Like being gay in my family was already hard. What happens if like I come out as trans and I lose my friends and I already mm -hmm. lost all my friends because I came out sober. I've right. had a lot of coming out like already yeah. and I'm like, this is too much. So I hid that. And then I went to college. I went to grad school and I graduated and I was working in the LGBT treatment center and I was so unhappy. Mm. I was so depressed. No one knew. Like my best friend who helped me get sober, like I think one of the things when I came out to her about being trans and being suicidal, she was just like, I can't believe you didn't call me. Like, I can't yeah. believe you didn't reach out. And it was just this deep, deep secret that I had. And I found myself on a bridge, ready to kill myself. Mm. And so I had a moment where it was over the 35 bridge in Minnesota and Minneapolis. And I had a moment of clarity where I didn't want to cause trauma to someone else because it was like an overpass. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to cause trauma to someone and yeah. I don't want to do that. So I stepped back from that moment and I decided to get help with the trauma therapist at that point in time and, and come out to her. Like I had had therapists over wow. the years and I had never come out. So like I walked into her office and she's like, how you doing today? And I was like, I'm trans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like literally oh. what I said. And from that moment... She was not trans herself. She was not part of the LGBT community. She was not actually part of the recovery community, but she held space for mm. me to explore that and to walk through that. So that's been over, you know, the last eight years now have been walking through this journey and at the same time helping others and helping others to do the coming out process and helping others to mm -hmm. do better by their clients and things like that. So I use my story. I use yeah. humor to kind of help because there's so much charge when we're talking mm -hmm. about this stuff. Like there's so much charge around gender and sexuality that mm -hmm. we have to like let it go <laughs> and we have to lean into the uncomfortable of what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. So first of all, thank you for sharing that. Like, yeah, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> Second of all, the thing I was just thinking as you were talking about the end there, whenever genitals are involved, we freak the fuck out. Oh, yeah. Right. We're obsessed with genitals and yes. then we don't want to talk about them. And then we don't want to talk about it. Ugh, makes me so angry. Yeah. Gender reveal parties are like the bane of my existence. They should be like genital reveal parties because that's what we're really talking about. Right. And it's interesting because there was an article about a trans person who had just had a baby and gave the baby pronouns she and <laughs> some of the comments on there were like, because I think their pronouns were they and they were like, well, how can they gender the baby? And I was like, actually, that's a really good question. Why are mm -hmm. we gendering babies? Like, <laughs> yeah, why don't we let them make that decision? I've actually been asked this quite a bit in the last week, which is kind of weird about gendering of children. And what do you think about that? <laughs> they want to know what I think about that. And I'm like, well, yep. since I'm the poster child the token of, of trans. the trans community, yeah, <laughs> let me answer this for you for the whole mm -hmm. community. Yeah. No, but in my experience, one thing is that through my journey of transition, 
I really embrace the way that I was socialized and raised. Mm. I can say that now after a lot of work. Yeah. Not yeah. a lot of people get to live in these two spaces or this mm. whole space of gender like I've been able to. And I feel yeah. like it's a blessing for me. And I have a friend who said, we're going to use female pronouns unless she tells us otherwise, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And we can have that conversation. I think that until a child is able to speak for themselves, then I will believe them when they say, I use she pronouns or I use he pronouns or call me a girl or I'm a boy or I'm a person or, you know, like, mm -hmm. cool. Kids should be allowed to play with gender. Mm -hmm. I have plenty of friends who played with gender as kids. When I told my mom that I was trans, she was like, that actually fits you more than being a lesbian. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. Good job, mom. Good job, mom. Well, yeah. I mean, this is coming from like a 75 year old, like Catholic lady. And we've gone through our process, right? I mean, I'm not saying that was like super easy for her. But at age five, or three or four, I was calling myself Boy Roger. Oh. It was the 80s. So like, think of Boy George. And like, yeah. I think it wasn't just Roger. It was Boy Roger. It was very insistent. Mm. But there was no language. There was no talk 35 years ago. Now you know my age. But 35 years ago, <laughs> that was about trans people. I mean, there right, was some right. minimal talk, but it wasn't like right, it right. is today. They were just probably like, well, we'll just let Beck do whatever Beck does. Until mm -hmm. like, you know, you can't just walk around with no shirt anymore, you know, right. like, you just can't do that anymore right, right. until puberty hit. Even though that was like a super depressing time for me, I was pretty able to play with gender in a conservative household for a long time. I think for me, though, I mean, well, this is obviously like for kids that are assigned female at birth to want to be boys is way more accepted, right? Than little assigned male at birth yeah, kids yeah. wanting to be girls, right? Because we have this whole issue with masculinity and femininity in the world. Right. And testosterone is more powerful. So if one decides they want to actually take testosterone and transition, physiologically, it's easier, right? I mean, I don't want to say easy versus not, but you know what I'm saying? Like testosterone kind of takes over yeah. more than estrogen does. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and depending on the timing and all of that stuff, mm -hmm. I mean, right. So that's when we're talking about like trans youth. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, there's a reason why we do maybe hormone blockers if there's access. But the point is that like there's not a whole lot of access. There's only certain kids that are allowed to have that because it's not covered by insurance and right. things like that. So right. it's so complicated up here in like the like the industry and in the system, right? But mm. when you come down to the heart, it's actually not that complicated. Yeah. Society complicates it, right? The way we are raised complicates mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. I think people's desire to understand and make something right and something wrong. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And fear that comes down to fear. Absolutely. Since we're talking about I don't know when this is going to go on there. But today, in the news on January 22nd, right, they're implementing the ban on trans military where mm. trans people have always been in the military. Right. You just didn't fucking know it. <laughs> right. But you do know it that right. the U.S. military is the number one employer of trans people. What? Really? Yeah. You have 15,500 wow. out transgender military people. Wow. You have 138,000 transgender veterans, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So whether they were out as trans in the military or not or after, you know, but I mean, you're telling me that like 
these individuals are not capable of serving where they've been serving for years. I have people in my life who've been in the military for 15, 20 years protecting this country to give rights to people and you're taking away these rights. And so these are the clients we have coming in into our offices, the amount of stress and the pain and these young people that I work with who want to be in the military, which I'm like, why? But that's what they want to do, right? right and I'm not right. going to like yuck someone's yum, right? Like I'm not going to do that. I'm going to. Ooh, I never <laughs> heard that and I'm going to steal it. Go I on. Steal it, yeah. Go yeah. on. <laughs> I would like to say that that's not mine. That also comes from a wonderful store in Minneapolis. Uh huh. So um, but it says, you know, don't yuck someone's yum. But I think that's about everything, right? If someone is really about wanting to be in the military, great. But now it's like these kids are like, well, I can't even go there. And I remember mm. like when I was 17, I was like, I'm going to go into the military because <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to get out of the small town that I was living in. And that looked really like the nice way out. But I remember doing the full on like assessment and all that stuff where you stay the night and standing there at 17 or about to be 18 and them coming on stage and saying, if you are part of the LGBT community, we have a thing called don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was like, oh, God, what have I gotten myself into? Luckily, I had just had knee surgery and they didn't take me. But I was like, wow, this is really happening. It's just we see so much progress in the last even five, six years around trans identity. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us just see so far to go. We have so far to go. Oh, yeah. I was watching. I think it was the CNN. Yeah, it was the CNN documentary about the 80s and just all of the things that the gay community had to do around AIDS. And thank God the community was able to mobilize and advocate for itself and there's a level of it's more scary somehow than just being gay for just general population who have fear around the LGBT community. The T is the scariest one. Right. And I don't know if it's the genital issue. I don't know if it's just like the idea that someone could possibly change. I don't know what it is, but I feel like there does need to be more advocacy, not just from within the community, but from people who can be advocates and resources. Right. When I hear like trans issue, I always laugh to myself because I'm like, mm. it's actually not a trans issue. Yeah. It's actually like a cisgender issue. <laughs> yeah, like, no, you know, you're like, so right. Yes. Issue. No, you're absolutely right. I want to do a talk that's like cisgender issues. It's not yes. us, it's you. <laughs> yes. And that makes me think about race, too, because it's yeah. not really a POC issue. It's a white people issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's what we say. I mean, I say it yeah. all the time, too. I just I don't think I would have as many issues if it weren't for your issues. Yes. No, you're <laughs> my attachment disorder. No, no, but it's so easy to blame the victim, you know, and some people would be like, well, you're just wanting other people to change to make you more comfortable. But it's like if we all could just fucking calm down and just like let people be and not freak out about it. I don't know if it's your interpretation of what you think Jesus thinks we're supposed to do that's making you persecute others, but like right. fucking stop it. Right. Look at marriage equality, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there was just like up in arms, like, oh my God. Right, you right. Know, we now we're going to marry dogs. Marry. <laughs> yeah, if we allow the gays to marry, everything's going to be horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one has been killed because of someone gay got married in their town. No one has died. There's nothing that has happened that's been so horrific. I mean, besides all the forest fires and the destruction that are happening in the, you know, <laughs> the right. uh, the world around us, because they love to blame that on us. 
If yes. only we had that much power. I know, right? I think if we had that much power, we would do it something else, right? Like something else would happen. There but, would be a lot more glitter. Yeah, there'd be a lot more sunshine in Chicago. I'm telling you that uh, much. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I know a lot of gays in Chicago and they... E- <laughs> oh, yes, yes. They're not be- loving the snow as much as... We like the sun, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think we I'm can stereotype that. Yes. But LGBT people like the sun. Yeah, I just think that there's so much... It's so charged. It's so charged. And I hear in the political sphere is like identity politics and blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, my identity is political. And who's making it political? Right. If you didn't just if you didn't like take my rights away, maybe I wouldn't have to make it political. Maybe if I didn't have to worry that I would lose my job if I came out. So who's Mm -hmm. making it political? Is Mm -hmm. it us? Not necessarily. But it is who I am, and I'm going to stand up and fight for my rights. It's just we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go with race. We have a long mm-hmm. way to go with sexism. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just so everything is so charged. And I mean, just to bring it back to like mental health and addiction and I mean, my community and the reason why I do the work that I do is that I see my community dying at high mm-hmm. rates from addiction, from yep. from. Yep suicide and whatever I can do to like, you know, diffuse that in the moment with whoever's in front of me, I'm going to try to do because we're losing out on like really freaking awesome people. Just thinking of the trans community specifically and that could have added to this world. So are you a healer? (sighs) Good deep breath. Good. Regulate the system. Regulate the system. That seems like a big job. Mm, (laughs) mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I would like to think of myself as a healer in the capacity of like a facilitator. That's what we do is like we facilitate that process. And I may not be the person that heals, but I will point you to all the directions of the places Mm -hmm. that I think you should go to heal. You know, I'm going to find you those people. I'm going to find you those resources. I'm going to find the place or the community right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I want to do. Because I feel like that's been given to me in certain ways in, yeah. in free. But also I feel like if I had that in my life, I'd be living a different life today. I don't know. I try not to like obviously dwell on that. Mm-hmm. But like if I can facilitate the conversation with parents, which is something that I probably can't even do with my own parents. You know, I have the conversation and teach my parents how they should be with me. It's it's a little bit harder to do that with our own families. Oh, right? yeah. Dude, isn't that why we go into this so we can fix other people's families? Because we yeah. can't fix yeah. our own. <laughs> we can't fix our own, so we're going to fix other people's. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. That's exactly yeah. why we get into that. Uh-huh. Right? Don't let your therapist lie to you, people. We go into this for ourselves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and all the money. And all the money. All the riches. Yeah. I just am dripping in gold right now. <laughs> I know. Yeah, well, for sure. your story, if I may, really kind of encapsulates the archetype of the wounded healer because, I mean, we're never done healing, right? So you healed right. yourself knowing that, yes, the healing continues, but you healed yourself and then decided like, hey, I've got shit to share. My story might be able to help somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how you feel about the term wounded healer. I mean, I'll take that on. I'm I'm definitely wounded, <laughs> you know, and I, mm-hmm. hey, 
<laughs> I mean, right? That's the essence of what trauma is, right? It's a wound, yeah. right? And so again, once I know that I have it, I'm like forced to look at it and I am forced to work on it. Trauma for me never goes away. My life gets bigger around it, right? Right, right. At one point in my life, there's trauma that has happened that it's just like feels like it takes up my whole life. Mm -hmm. And once I start working on it, oh, my life gets bigger. But it's always like kind of there and it can always come back and bite me. Someone can mirror that for me and my reactions to the world around me or to someone could trigger that piece. But when I get to do my work, when I get to work with others and help them, like it's having a corrective experience. When I get to help these kids, a gift that I get is like, I'm getting to heal that kid in me that never got to have that. So when I get to stand up for a kid to their parents, I'm standing up for myself. I mean, I'm not like obviously healing myself through the kids, but it's just like, Mm -hmm. it's like a benefit of the process. So I also work in psychodrama as well. I'm doing a training in like two weeks. I can't wait. Are you really? I am. Oh, fun. Yeah, I do an ongoing training group four times a year, and it's been life changing to train in it and then to do some of my own work in it. Mm -hmm. And my facilitator said something to the effect of, you know, therapy is about two people healing and one person getting paid. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that's... Yes. And she got it from someone else. And I, I don't want to like misquote. I mean, she's not the originator of the quote, but I think yeah. that that in and of itself is true. Like we are healing. I mean, it's just a benefit of the process. And if we're not healing, then, you know, then we should probably get out. Right. But we also have to be really consistent with doing our own work. Because if we're not, then we're doing damage. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's literally part of the reason that I started the podcast is I wanted to I guess, create space for other people to know that we're all fucked up and we all have to be doing this work together at the same time. Like I have some clients that I'm just like tiny little baby steps ahead of in my journey. Right. And there are a trillion times when I've said something, something's fallen out of my mouth and I say it to a client and I'm like, bitch, you best listen. That's what you needed to hear too, (laughs) right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I was working with prior to my transition, when I was working with trans folks and and I was actually doing a lot of speaking engagements, it was like almost this silent screaming. Mm. I was advocating for myself and working with clients who are going through transition. I mean, prior to my transition, it was hard. Mm -hmm. It was really hard. And I think that's where I kind of spun out because I wasn't doing my own work and I wasn't being honest with where I was. And yeah, I mean, I'm grateful that I have had that experience. I'm honest about my experience. I have to be, I have to be. So our field is changing to where there is more space for us to share our stories. And I, I think in general, like there's just this cry for authenticity in all areas. I think we need to be honest and boundaried, right? Like there are definitely parts of my story that are too intimate for me to share with everybody. But the general themes, everybody's going through the same shit in some way. Yeah. There's research that shows for the LGBTQ community that disclosure is actually healthier, right? Mm. For like connection, obviously healthy disclosure. And I think that therapists sometimes can get so walled up Mm -hmm. and a client reads you. And it's just about being smart about it, understanding Mm -hmm. what vulnerability is. I remember the first time I cried in a session with a client. Mm, Yes. And I beat the shit out of myself afterwards. I was like, 
but I was like, I mean, you know, I was just like, I was like, why did I do this? Like, oh. like, you know, because I just felt like I had to be like this robot. And finally, my supervisor was like, dude, you're not a robot. Yeah. Man. Like, this shit's hard. It's going to affect us. Yeah. And that was some probably some of the best work that I've done with a client. Now, if I'm crying all the time in session, that's a whole nother story. Like, <laughs> right. 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 Let's get more supervision there. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like so okay because like that's really what we're having in therapy is like this human experience, right? If I want to go talk to a robot, like I can do that. But I think people and me, myself included, crave human interaction and a space where I can just tell my stuff and it be accepted. That is how we heal attachment. I'm just reading a book. I think it's literally called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. And it talks about how the brain then changes based on having a relationship with somebody who is repairing that attachment. Yeah, I've been really stuck on the quote. It's from Gabor Mate, actually, mm-hmm. and, and I've been using it in my talks because we talk a lot about safety and safe places, especially in regards to the LGBT community. Like mm-hmm. our facility is a safe place. And I'm like, no, it's not. No like, place is a safe place. No place is a safe place. So the quote is like, safety is not the absence of threat. It's the presence of connection, right? So we can't have a safe space. Like, you know, safe space stickers like bug the crap out of me. I mean, we have safe moments, right? We we have safe interactions. Safe relationships. Yeah. And and even in those relationships, sometimes it can vacillate. But I have to talk to my clients who are so expecting like everything to be safe because they're in the facility. And it's like, it's not the world around us. And safe doesn't mean we're not going to be uncomfortable. That's, I think, the the difference, right? There's a difference between an actual threat and discomfort. And One of my friends works at a university that I will not mention, but apparently there's this huge situation around people saying that they're being triggered by stuff that's going on in class. And it's like your teacher has to fucking teach you about trauma. They have to teach you about this shit. If they can't say it in the classroom, you're going to be a shitty therapist. Right. The word trigger and Mm -hmm. what that means gets really thrown around and trigger warnings and, and all of this. And we have to understand what it is to be triggered. And like you said, what it is to be uncomfortable and how to sit through that discomfort and how to comfort yourself through that too. Yes. And because if we're like constantly triggered, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what an actual trigger is, like we'd be fucked. Yeah. Right? Like right. We would be really screwed. So it's really about using different words yes. and saying, I'm uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. This topic is this, that, or the other. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, especially around this stuff, if we're going to be talking about sexual trauma Mm -hmm, in a session mm -hmm. and we get actually Mm -hmm. triggered, we need to know what that is compared to what is uncomfortable. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. We see it thrown around all over the place now. And when I talk to young people, too, I do do confront them, like lovingly Mm -hmm. confront them about that. Like, what is an actual trigger? What does that feel like to you? Mm -hmm. Where is it in your body? Right. And I literally just had this conversation. First, we have to know how to be in our bodies. And I think Mm -hmm. for Americans in general, I won't stereotype other cultures, but Americans are really bad at it. And I also think if your body has been a place of potential suffering, it's probably even less comfortable for one to be in their bodies. So we have to be able to do that and then get quiet. And that's just not what our culture supports very often. 
No, not at all. We want to get the external mm-hmm. factor to make me feel better, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, my stomach hurts. Let me get the Pepto. You know, like, yeah. oh my, you know, here's, let me get the Tylenol. Let me get this, this, mm-hmm. this. And not really see, like, I get stomach issues when I'm, you know, <laughs> like feeling, right. you know, stressed out and I'm not breathing and all of mm-hmm. those things. And so we always looking for the external fix. Yeah. And that's the issue with, I think, our culture a lot is the external fix, whether that be sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever it is. (laughs) Damn straight. Well, it's been an hour and I feel like I could continue to talk to you for like the rest of my evening, but I'm guessing you probably have other shit to do. I mean, you know, I guess so. I guess I'll go outside in this really freezing cold weather. (laughs) All right. Fuck you. Take Um, a walk. (laughs) (laughs) But before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to say that you haven't shared? I don't know. I don't even know what we really talked about. We just kind of just went for it. So, I mean, with your listeners, I mean, I'm sure you'll put my info up. When people have questions or they need resources or they have families or kiddos that need some help, I'm always available. I will always answer questions where I can. And really, like, I can't emphasize enough that we're losing these kids to drugs, to suicide and all that stuff that we have the potential to really help them. So, I'm glad to try to find that help wherever they are in the world. I will throw out my net um, Mm. to try to find those resources for them. Thank you. And I also want to thank you. For me, two areas where I have a lot more work to do is around my trans competence and also around like racial competence. And so I just wanted to thank you for being gentle and gracious with me (laughs) when the things that come out of my mouth don't come out in the most eloquent way. (laughs) We can only learn through having conversations and open dialogue. Right. And I mean, part of why I do this too, like I want to stumble and have other people here that we can stumble and we can learn instead of just doing it perfect all the time. But thank you. I mean, I do it perfect all the time. Right. So everybody (laughs) except for Beck, you get to fuck up. But Beck will be perfect. Okay. (laughs) Practically perfect in every way. Well, thank you again so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So did you guys laugh as hard as I did? I mean, pretty hilarious, right? Like we had such a good time. (laughs) I don't know how I end up becoming best friends with people in an instant, but I feel very blessed for that gift that I've been given. So thank you again to Beck for being on the show today. Thank you as always to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art photo, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find more about Beck G. Cohen, you can visit our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks so much. Until next time. Bye-bye.